Some of you might have read the book published under various titles, Through the Valley of the Kwai, uh, Miracle on the River Kwai, or To End All Wars. It's also been made into a film called To End All Wars, stars Kiefer Sutherland, and it's the autobiography of a Scotsman called Ernest Gordon, who fought in World War II. Ernest had begun the war as an agnostic and a man of the world. Uh, when he joined the army, he was fighting in World War II. He was captured in the fall of Singapore and spent three years in a Japanese POW camp. He was one of the men who helped to build the bridge on the River Kwai. Conditions were horrific. The Japanese guards were cruel. Everyone lost weight. Many became sick and died. Ernest himself was placed in the death ward for those who were not expected to survive. While he was there, he was cared for by two men in their late 20s. One was a Methodist, one was a Catholic. These men gave 24-hour-a-day care to Ernest. They boiled rags to clean his diseased legs. They massaged them daily. And amazingly, he survived. And during this time, the whole prison camp experienced a revival and an outbreak of faith. There was a real spiritual awakening that happened in that camp. Ernest had been an agnostic, but through the witness of those two young men, he became a Christian. Amazingly, he, unlike many others, survived the war. And God used the impact of those two young men on his life so that he ended his working days as the Presbyterian Dean of the Chapel at Princeton University. Now, I'm telling you this story because it's a really significant illustration of the passage before us this morning. Because the passage we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through to 21. And the main point that we're going to see as we look at this passage is that through the gospel, God gives us a new life and a new mission. Because it's through Jesus' death on the cross that we are saved to no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. For it's at the cross that Jesus takes away our sins so that we can be reconciled to God and then live as his ambassadors. And so we're going to look at the passage this morning under three headings. The gospel, our new lives, and our new mission. But before we look at what Paul has to say about the gospel here, let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We are conscious that uh, you are our greatest need, as we have been reminded. Lord, without you, without Jesus, without the cross, uh, we would not be here. Without the Holy Spirit, none of us would have a Christian faith. Lord, you are everything that we need. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our lives to hear your word this morning and to respond in repentance and faith. Lord, please be working to grow us and to change us through our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we read this passage before us, a brief bit of context just to set the scene for where we are here in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is, funnily enough, probably the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians is probably the second letter, and the other two are lost. And Paul is writing 2 Corinthians because uh, there are false teachers in the, t in the church who are challenging Paul's integrity and his personal credibility as an apostle. And so he's under attack. And so he writes 2 Corinthians to reluctantly defend himself against these false teachers so that the gospel may not be distorted by them and the church may grow up in true gospel faith. Because it's such a, a personal situational letter, verses 11 to 13 of this passage relate directly to the situation that Paul finds himself in, uh, in with the church at Corinth. He's appealing to the Corinthians based on his ministry amongst them and his relationship with them. And he's also giving them some explanation as to why they shouldn't listen to these false teachers who are bad-mouthing him in the ministry he's had. 
And because these three verses are so specific and so particular to the situation at Corinth, we won't spend much time on verses 11 to 13 of the passage. But it's in verses 14 to 21 that we'll really spend the bulk of our time. Because it's here that Paul really, in a sense, takes off. He really teaches about the gospel, our new life and our new mission in a very significant way. So let's read the passage together and then we'll begin to unpack it. So if you've got a Bible, please come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so our first section today is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the foundation of everything in the Christian life. And Paul speaks of the gospel in some powerful ways here in this passage. Verse 14 shows us the gospel starts with God and the love of Christ. It is God who initiates the saving work of the gospel. It is God who takes all the steps to overcome the broken relationship that we have all inherited after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. They broke the perfect relationship that they enjoyed with God at creation. And we inherit this broken relationship. But God is the one who takes the steps to fix it. The normal pattern for reconciliation is that the offender is the one who initiates the reconciliation. But in this case, we see God the offended one, initiating the reconciliation. And verse 14 shows us that he did it but through Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus died for sinful humanity so that sinful humanity could be united and joined to Christ. Romans 5 verse 8 says that, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died on the cross. And in some mysterious way, we died with him. When a person becomes a Christian, they are united with Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in and lives in us. And we are mysteriously joined with Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his glory in the age to come. In the words of the Bible, we are in Christ. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And one of the main themes of this passage is that Jesus died so that we could be saved 
and we could be reconciled to God. In verse 21, Paul lays out how this happened and what Jesus' death actually meant. Jesus had no sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And because of this, he was able to do something that none of us were able to do because of our own personal sin. Because of Jesus' sinlessness, God made him sin for us. He died in our place as our substitute. Sin died with Jesus on the cross. And not only this, when we trust in Jesus, our sins aren't just taken away. Something else happens, something marvelous. We become the righteousness of God. Jesus exchanges our sins for his righteousness. The theological word for this is imputation. It's actually a financial term that means to credit something to your account. God imputes and credits our sin to Jesus And then he imputes and credits Jesus' righteousness to us. And why did he do this? So that we could be reconciled to God. Paul emphasizes this reconciliation over and over again in verses 18 and 19. We have been reconciled to God. And to be reconciled means to be restored to a relationship where it used to be broken. Have you stopped to think about this recently? That if you are a Christian that you are reconciled to God, that your guilt over sin is defeated and dealt with by Jesus at the cross, that you are declared fully righteous in Christ, that you are adopted as a child of God and will never be cast out of the family of God. What difference would it make to our daily lives if we truly believe that we are reconciled to God? If we truly believe that God loved us and gave us His Son to die so that we could be saved and that we are saved? How would we live and think differently if we believe that we are the righteousness of God, like this passage says that we are? Maybe you struggle to believe some of these things. Maybe you struggle to believe that in God's eyes you are righteous. Maybe you struggle to believe that you are loved by God. Verse 14 of this passage tells us that we are loved by God. No matter what rejection or pain has come into our lives, If we're trusting in Jesus, then we are loved and reconciled to God. Everything in life might seem to be falling apart for us. But if we're right with God, then we can understand and see the challenges of life with a true perspective. We are righteous. We are loved by God. And in the words of Romans 8, 38 to 39, we can be convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we are Christians here today, then Paul would want us to know that we are more sinful than we could ever have imagined. But we are more loved than we could ever have dreamed and hoped. No matter what happens in this life, if we are a Christian today, then we can have a sure hope, a sure confidence that we are reconciled and we are in right standing with God. Because as verse 18 shows us, All of this comes from God and depends on God. It's His plan. He did it. It's not dependent on us performing, meeting some mark, keeping some set of rules, making the grade. It's all His work. We get the benefit from it. And this is the good news. This is the beginning and the foundation of everything in the Christian life. In the gospel, God not only saves us and declares us to be righteous, but He gives us new lives. And this is our second point for this morning. Now think back to Ernest Gordon for a moment. 
Going into the war, he was an agnostic with no interest in knowing or following God. But he was confronted with the gospel through the lives of two young men who didn't live for themselves. At one point, one of these men gave his entire meager food ration to keep Ernest alive, almost trading his own life in in the process. He almost died so that he could keep Ernest alive. The love that Ernest experienced and the truth that he heard led him to become a Christian. He was united with Jesus. He was in Christ. And this dramatic change to his life didn't just give him a slight change of focus. It wasn't just a nice thing that he kind of checked into on Sunday morning. It radically transformed his life and the way that he lived. I'm sure that if you told him before the war that he'd end his working days as a dean of a university chapel, he would have laughed you out of the bar. But this is what God's love and the gospel does. Verse 14, Paul says that Christ's love compels him because he is convinced about the gospel truths that we're looking at here this morning. This new life is one which is compelled, controlled, constrained by Jesus' love. We can't ignore it. We can't go on living life as if it doesn't matter. It forces change upon us in a powerful way. And verse 15 tells us what this change looks like. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Friends, if you're a follower here of Jesus this morning, then you are no longer in control of your life. You don't get to make the calls. Your control is forfeit. You aren't to live for yourself. You're to live for Jesus, the one who died for you and was raised again. And verses 16 through to 21 tells us what it means to live out this new life. Because in the language of verse 17, we are in Christ and we are new creations. The person you were before Christ saved you is gone forever. And you are a new person, a born again person. You are a child of God as a result of the love that God has lavished upon you. As John exclaims in 1 John 3 verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. In Christ we are new people with a new identity and so we're to live new lives. Part of this new life is to see people as they truly are, not from a worldly point of view. A worldly point of view looks at someone and sees them as either white or black. Aussie or Kiwi, cool or loser, sporty or cultural, extroverted or introverted, or any other of the dozens of labels that we slap on people subconsciously or consciously. But these labels are unimportant and meaningless when we are in Christ. The only thing that truly matters is whether a person is in Christ or not. Because God only sees in two categories. God sees people as either lost or found. They are either a new creation or they're an old creation. They're either a child of God or they're a child of the devil. They're a slave to sin or they're a slave to righteousness. There is no one neutral when it comes to God. We're either following Jesus or we are opposed to Jesus. Now we struggle to see people like this because the worldly points of view that are all around us informing our cultural framework tell us, all sorts of different things. People, all sorts of other things. The, the culture doesn't tell us someone's lost or found. So it's hard for us to maintain this perspective. And in verse 16, Paul confesses that before he knew Christ, he saw Jesus from a worldly point of view. He saw Jesus in the way of Christ as a threat to true Judaism and what he understood to be the way of godliness. And Paul was sincere 
but he was sincerely mistaken. And when he became a new creation, his way of seeing Christ and people changed. How do you see people when you look out upon a crowded room? Do you struggle to see them in the categories of lost and found and instead make judgments based on other things? Do you dismiss the possibility that someone could be interested in knowing Jesus based on their tattoos or their dress sense or their hobbies or where they live or the car that they drive? I have to tell you that in my ministry experience around residential colleges, I get scared and intimidated by two groups of people. There's the rugby boys and there's the cool kids. They're normally around 20 of each of them in any decent-sized college. They move in large groups, they stick together, and I get a bit scared by those groups. Now, I know that it's a bit silly for me to be scared by a bunch of 18 to 20-year-olds who are trying to be way tougher than they actually are. But it's easy for me to see their exterior, the toughness, the, the coolness, the altogetherness that they're putting on, and get blinded to their standing before the Lord. So if you struggle to see and love a particular group of people, then I can sympathize and understand that. But neither you nor I can rest in our struggle. Neither you nor I can rest in our paradigms by which we see and judge people. We need to go to the Lord and we need to repent of that way of seeing people. And we need to ask God to help us to see people in the way that He sees people. We need to live not for ourselves and for our own comfort in choosing who we interact with or which neighbor we talk to. But we're to live for Christ who died for us and was raised again and to interact with all people as those who are either lost or found. And this leads us into our third and final point for this morning, our new mission. Now in talking about our new mission, we're talking about a particular aspect of the new life that we have in Christ. In verses 16 to 21, Paul tells us how to live out our gospel faith. But he gives a particular focus to how we're to live out our gospel mission as part of this new life. And so we're going to focus in on this point, this aspect in our third point here. Focusing on a particular aspect of the Christian life is like practicing for a game of golf. Is anyone here a golfer? All right, we're in trouble. All right, we're going to work with the illustration though. Your practice, if you want to practice your golf game, you don't just go out and play around every day. You go to the driving range and you hit lots of a particular shot. You practice your putting or your chipping or your driving or your get out of trouble shot. And you practice it many times so that when you come to the course, when you play around, that aspect of your game is improved. And so if, if your chipping has improved, you might gain 10 shots off your round by practicing that one shot. Because instead of missing the green when you chip, you're hitting the green. You're giving yourself a better chance to putt. And so everything in our lives is part of our new life in Christ. Everything is together. It's all part of the golf game of life, so to speak. But we're going to go to the driving range now and practice talking about our mission in Christ. And what we find here in Paul's letter is that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And now that he's done that, he's given us something to do. He's given us a ministry, a message, an appeal to make as ambassadors of Christ. It is the ministry and the message of reconciliation. God has given us the privilege and responsibility of being His heralds to proclaim the message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation. In God's grace, He's chosen those of us who are in Christ to be the instruments through which He brings the good news of the gospel to the world. This means that you and I are privileged and responsible for making known the truth about God's work of reconciling sinful men and women to Himself. 
We're to do this so that more and more people can be reconciled to God and be saved. We don't know who will believe. And so we're to share with people wherever we find ourselves and with whoever we can. We're to implore, to beg, to beseech, to urge, to exhort people to be reconciled to God. Paul says that we are Christ's ambassadors. Christ is no longer with us in a physical sense. And yet he declares that we are to be his ambassadors, his representatives in the world. Now an ambassador is one who speaks as a representative of a great person. King Jesus is our sovereign Lord and Savior. And we represent King Jesus here on earth. As his ambassadors, we're to to declare the good news and to speak what he would say if he were physically present with us. We are to explain and urge people to consider the good news of the gospel. We cannot make anyone receive God's offer of reconciliation, but we can faithfully present the offer and urge people to consider and to respond to it. And that's our role as ambassadors, for it's the Holy Spirit who will regenerate and change the heart of a person. Christian brothers and sisters, do you look at yourself in the mirror each morning and see yourself as an ambassador for King Jesus? Because you are, whether you know it or not. The people around us are going to form judgments about Jesus based on how we live and how we speak. As his ambassador, we carry a message of hope and reconciliation from a gracious king to his wayward subjects. We have the good news, the words of eternal life, and we are to implore our non-Christian friends and family and colleagues and strangers on the bus or plane or wherever we find ourselves to be reconciled to God. You don't have to be a professional evangelist. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a full-time employee of a church or a ministry in order to live and to speak as an ambassador. We are all to be ambassadors of reconciliation in whatever roles or life stage God has given us. This is going to look different for different people. So it's not about comparing ourselves with one another and saying, man, that guy does that thing over there and that's fa- that's, I could never do that. You're not supposed to do what that guy doing that thing over there does. You're supposed to be an ambassador of Christ where God has placed you with the gospel that he's given to each one of us. It's about seeking to be faithful as an ambassador wherever we are. To be a faithful ambassador, we need to know four things, though, in order to communicate clearly. We need to know who we are in Christ, which is our gospel identity. We need to know what the content of the message of reconciliation is. We need to see people as they really are. And we need to know how to communicate to them and explain the message of reconciliation. Now the first three of these things, our gospel identity, the message content, and seeing people rightly is going to come as we read the Bible, as we go to church, as we meet in our home groups, as we pray, and as we grow to maturity. But there may be a training need if you don't yet know how to communicate your faith, communicate the message of reconciliation to the people around you. And two great tools for this are to write out and learn your story, your personal testimony. How has God worked in your life to bring you to an understanding of what it means to be a Christian? That's a powerful way of communicating the message of reconciliation to people. And the second one is that there's great value in memorizing a simple gospel presentation, a simple way of explaining the truths about Jesus and what God is doing here in the world, how the cross fits in, who God is, what does it mean to be a Christian, so that when the opportunity comes, you can give a clear account for what it means to be an ambassador for Christ and a Christian. 
Now, there's a lot of great tracts and tools out there. Uh, have a chat to the leaders here in the church if you're looking for a recommendation or if you want to get started on learning one of those ways of speaking the truth. You don't need to know all the answers. You don't need to have been saved from an addiction and the worst life in the world to have a great story to tell. Because whether you know it or not, every sinner was a horrible, horrible person. It was a horrible life. We were offensive to God. We had a terrible life. And in Christ, we've been saved. And we all have a great story to tell of God's work in our lives. We were more sinful than we could ever have imagined. But in Christ, we're more loved than we could ever have hoped. And whichever way we look at it, that's an amazing thing. And that's something to share and to talk about. And you and I can pray for opportunities to tell others about this. We can be praying for our neighbours, our colleagues, our family members, the, the mate on the bus, wherever you are. Let's be in prayer for the people around us that we would have an opportunity to speak of what God has done in our lives. And then when those opportunities come, let's take a risk and let's seize those opportunities and let's speak a word for Jesus. Let's share our testimony. Let's explain something about the Christian life. Let's say, yeah, I was at church on the weekend. And someone says, why? You can say, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Let me, this is why I go to church because Jesus has changed my life. We don't do this to earn anything for ourselves. This is not to make God more pleased with us. We are fully righteous in Christ. We can say these things and speak these things because we are righteous and because we are ambassadors of King Jesus. He declares us to be His ambassadors, His righteous ones in this world. In conclusion, there are two types of people here this morning. There are people who need to hear and to respond to the gospel as those who haven't yet become Christians. And there are people here who need to hear and respond to the gospel who are Christians. The gospel is not just where we start in the Christian life. It's also where we finish and it's everything in between. If you're not a Christian, then the Bible says that you're condemned by God and you're facing death and judgment. If you die as you are this morning, or if Jesus comes back before anything changes, then terrible consequences lie ahead. Jesus speaks of hell many times in the gospels and it is an awful place. We don't want to go there. But we will unless we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So to anyone listening here this morning who's not a Christian, who isn't in Christ, then please come and talk to me this after the service or talk to Peter or one of the other leaders here in the church. You're probably more comfortable talking to them and that would be fantastic. But I want to urge you, exhort you to be reconciled to God today. Today is a fantastic day to have that conversation and to let, submit your life to Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a truly wonderful thing to follow God, to be reconciled to God, to be the righteousness of Christ. And it satisfies far more than just some sort of get out of hell free card. For in Jesus we receive a new life. And it might sound like a funny life, live for Jesus and not for yourself. But it's the pathway to true joy, true purpose and true satisfaction in life. So please, talk to someone this morning if you have questions. But I want to urge you to come and to be reconciled to God. And if you are a Christian here this morning, then I want to ask you two questions. Do you believe everything that this passage says? And are you seeking to live in light of it? 
Because if you aren't seeking to live out what this passage says, then the chances are you don't really believe what it says. This is a challenge for too many of us here who call ourselves Christians, who are Christians. We have become familiar with the gospel. The gospel has become a nice pair of slippers to warm up our feet, to make us cozy and comfy on a Sunday morning. This is not what the gospel is. The gospel is a beaten, broken, bleeding man hanging on a cross. The incarnate Son of God Himself, whose birth we've just celebrated. It is the breathtaking love that keeps Him there as He dies for our sins. It is His extraordinary resurrection on the third day. It is our union with Him when His Spirit comes into our lives. It is our salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, as we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour having done nothing to earn it. It's been compelled to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised again. It is the fact that we are new creations, that we are reconciled to God, that we have an ambassadorial responsibility to bear a message of reconciliation and hope to a broken world that desperately needs to hear it. So I ask you again, do you believe this? If this doesn't stir your heart and take your breath away at least a little bit, then I submit to you that you are possibly overly familiar with the gospel. You've forgotten the first love. You've forgotten what drew you to Christ in the first place. And this quite probably applies to all of us here who have been Christians for more than about six months. Each day we need to repent of our hard-heartedness. We need to go back to the gospel, remind ourselves who we were, who and who we are now in Christ. We need to remind ourselves of God's love and His deeds for us. And then we're to go out as ambassadors of Christ so that many may be implored to be reconciled to God. Through the gospel, God has given us a new life and a new mission. And we need to go out in His grace and His strength and with His help and live it out each day. Let me pray for us. Father God, these truths are wonderful and we repent of the fact that we become so familiar with them we rattle off cliches jesus died for our sins yeah i'm living for christ yeah i'm going for church but lord sometimes we just don't really think about them and we don't really believe them and we don't live in light of them we don't take any risks and we don't step out in faith and lord we repent of that we repent of the things that we can control and plan and just living there we repent of only talking to people who make ourselves feel good about ourselves because they like us and we like them lord Help us to grasp again the truths of Christ on the cross. Help us to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. Lord, we can't do this. Lord, we need your spirit at work in our lives. We repent of that old and tired way of living, that comfortable way of living. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to live out our faith individually and for the team here at the project this morning, the family of believers. I pray for them, Lord, as 2015 dawns, that you would help them to be risk takers, Help them to be bold. Help them to share with that person. Help them to speak a word and season to say, yeah, I was at church on the weekend and see what happens. Help them to take a risk knowing that they are ambassadors of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Father God, help us to know this, to believe it, to live in light of it. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this church and upon each one of us this morning. And Lord, I pray for those here today who are not Christians, that you would stir in their hearts and that you would be moving them closer to the cross. I pray, Lord, that they would come to you this morning, uh, that they would listen to your Spirit working in their hearts, and that you would draw people to be saved this morning. 
Lord, thank you for our fellowship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.